God is like an artist who creatively takes media and colors that seem odd and puts them together using techniques that are regarded as radical. In the book of Acts, God took a small band of misfits and transformed them into His church. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, everyday people became teachers, evangelists, and servant leaders. The church grew by the hundreds, people from every profession and socioeconomic background. In spite of their great diversity, their commitment and passion for Jesus radically unified them. They were marked by boldness, generosity, and their love for one another. Although perilous persecution scattered them, the gospel continued to circulate and the church relentlessly grew. What started in Jerusalem spread throughout Judea, across Samaria, and began to consume the world. This is the book of Acts. So if you guys have been traveling with us for any uh, amount of time, you know that uh, we are in the process of traveling through the incredible story of the early New Testament church after we had followed Jesus through the Gospels. We're in the book of Acts now and just kind of working our way through the story as we watch God reveal to them through the lives they're living and the things that he's doing uh, what it is that they're now called into, what a giant story it is that we are invited into as the church, the people of God. And so it's been exciting to watch uh, this, this story emerge before us and invite us into bigger things than we ever imagined. And just recently, we've been following Paul and Barnabas and John as they've been working their way through uh, sort of the, uh, the region of Israel and sharing the good news that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, has returned from the dead, and has brought with him the freedom that the nation of Israel has been longing for for so many centuries upon centuries. And so it's, it's kind of traveling with them, watching them spreading the great news of Jesus and seeing what results from that so that we can catch a clue into what we can expect as we travel through our journey carrying light, life, and freedom into the world. Uh, so John and Paul and Barnabas were making their way down to Antioch. If you were here last week, you may remember, as they were on their way down, John had to head back to Jerusalem. He made his way back to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas continued on to Antioch. And when they got to Antioch uh, on the Sabbath day, they went in and hung out at the uh, synagogue with those who were worshiping. And uh, in typical format in this time, if a visiting rabbi was moving through the region and, uh, and he was a fairly well-known rabbi, in this case Paul, being pretty well-known at this point, it, it was customary that at the end of the service time, when you're done going through the formalities of reading through the different scriptures and doing the things that you need to do, it was customary to kind of say to the visiting rabbi, hey, do you have any words for us, any, any teachings for us, anything you might bring to us uh, as you're traveling around and teaching? And so it told us in uh, Acts chapter 13 that word was sent to Paul and Barnabas and they were asked to share in the synagogue. So Paul gets up and he shares, if you remember, uh, this incredibly encouraging reality. The same encouraging reality he always shares, right? He goes, are you asking me if I have something to tell you that's going to be exciting? I do. It's the gospel. And so he gets up and he begins to unpack a story for them. And he shares with them in this beautiful picture of contextualizing the good news of Jesus into the audience that you're dealing with. He starts the story where these guys' hearts would begin. He says, you remember our people when they were stuck in Egypt, slaves? Do you remember what 
what God did then. God called us out of slavery and into the, the, the desert, sustained us in our rebellion in the desert, and then walked us into the promised land. What an incredible story. And then since that time, and then he walks through the history of Israel, the prophets, the, the kings, everything that God had done, and he starts shaping the story, showing the people that he's speaking to in the synagogue, a group of Jewish people and devout converts to Judaism, he's speaking to them and saying, do you see that the entire story that God has been writing throughout history has been to bring us to a place where he would bring to fruition the promises to rescue and restore our story? And I got great news for you. Jesus, who you have heard about, he is indeed the promised Messiah. He showed us, he demonstrated to us, he lived it, he died on the cross for us, he rose from the dead for us, and he has come to restore us to right relationship with God and restore us as a people of God to be living the life we were created to live. Well, that's great news. That is really good news. And so the people are sitting listening into this in the synagogue and, and they're, they're hearing in, in true form of this great news. The story God's been writing, writing for the nation of Israel has continually been to get to this moment and the story has always been for you. And it has now come. And then the people in the synagogue respond to this news. They jump up and they respond to what they're hearing Paul saying. Let's take a look at what their response was and see where the story goes from here. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts chapter 13. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide, you can go to page 599, page 599. That'll take you to Acts chapter 13 or in your Bible, go to whatever page Acts chapter 13 is on. In Acts chapter 13, uh, Paul has just unpacked the story of the gospel, the great news that Jesus has come to rescue and restore. And um, he now gets, we get to verse 42, and we see the response of the people. Verse 42, chapter 13, it says this, As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. I love that sentence. That's just such a great sentence. They were so excited about what they heard that the people, as they left the synagogue, can you imagine shaking Paul's hand and going, can you come back next week and can you do this again? See, they weren't even asking Paul to come back and teach them more or teach them other things. They were like, can you come do this again? We want to hear this story again. And I can imagine why they felt that way. Because when you collide for the first time and come awake for the first time to the great news that God has been authoring the human story all along to get us to the point where Jesus would fulfill the promises so that we could live lives that are restored into our created purpose to image God and restored into our created purpose to be loved by God in right relationship so we can experience life and freedom, that's great news. And you want to hear that again and again and again. And I can guarantee you there were some people in that synagogue that went, Oh man, Aunt Sue wasn't here. Uncle John wasn't here. I want to, could you do this again next week? Because they got to hear this. I, I could never tell them this the same way you just did. I, I want them to come back. Well, 
Paul and Barnabas agree to come back the next week to the synagogue and come and share the story again. And look what it says here. It says in verse 43, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, the devout converts to Judaism were Gentiles that had gone through an incredibly tedious, difficult, long, and painful process to be able to convert to Judaism. So the context here, although there are some previous Gentiles involved, these are previous Gentiles that have now now converted to Judaism, so in every way, shape, or form, they are considered part of the Jewish world. What they had to go through to become Jewish was a big deal. They are devout. So we're in a Jewish context here, and the Jewish people are following Jesus. They're excited, and, and look what it says. Followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now, After this incident at the synagogue where Paul and Barnabas laid out the gospel contextually for these people and they they realized the wonder of the rescue and restoration of the gospel, the week unfolds. And I can imagine as this week is unfolding that the Jewish people that were there are going to all their friends saying, next week you gotta be at the synagogue. This rabbi, Paul, is here. He is incredible and the message he is bringing is unbelievable. It is truly something you gotta know because it is the culmination the fulfillment of all the promises we have been waiting for centuries for, he'll tell you the story. But simultaneously, I bet part of the reason why it mentions here that there were some devout converts to Judaism is because these are Gentiles that have become Jews, and and you know how that rolls. I mean, I bet that they walked into the city into part of their old friends from the Gentile world and kind of did one of these. Hey, just a clue, be at the synagogue next Sunday. Just, Just be there, trust me. It's going to be epic, right? So the word spreads during this week beyond the Jewish context and spreads into the Gentile context and it spreads throughout the city. In a seven-day period of time, word gets out everywhere and here is the result of all the word getting out. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of uh, the Lord. Almost the whole city. Now, I want you to remember who's writing this book, right? The book of Acts has been written by Luke. Luke also wrote the book of Luke. And Luke is known for his attentiveness to details. Luke is a a detailed person. Luke does not like exaggerations. He does not like to make things, you know, he is the opposite of me, right? I mean, I, I'm big picture. So if, if there's some details, I mean, I'm the guy that would say, I mean, like the whole city showed up at the synagogue, meaning a few extra people than last week, right? But when Luke says, look, almost the whole city showed up at the synagogue, what Luke means is, Almost the whole city showed up at the synagogue. You understand? So at this point, we are given this picture where we ought to be imagining the synagogue and literally outside of the synagogue, crowding into the walls all around the area. Uh, As far as you can see, there's just crowds of people that have gathered because right now, the coolest thing in town is happening right here on the Sabbath. And you can imagine some of the Jewish people, the Jewish leadership especially, uh, in their robes and, and things. And now they're trying to weed through the crowds and there's Gentiles everywhere, right? You, you don't touch them. You don't talk to them. You, you don't go near them unless they've converted. And so you're walking through and like, come on, I just want to get in there where it's safe. And so all that dynamic is going on and, and this big crowd is gathered and, and, and Paul begins to share the gospel to this crowd. He begins to unpack the story 
story again, and he's speaking to Jews, he's speaking to Gentiles, he's speaking to the clean and the unclean. Uh, there's probably a bunch of people in there that, from a Jewish perspective, would be like, oh my gosh, she's here and he's here. Oh, no, not, no. I mean, they're, they're near the wall. That's, that's dangerous. And Paul is preaching the gospel, and it says these words. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. What a fascinating and interesting moment that just occurred. I just, when I read that the first time, I'm like, this is, this is odd to me. The week before, they discover the good news of the gospel. It's rescue and restoration. They recognize that the promises God has made to them have been fulfilled. They look into their future and it looks bright and free. They realize all of that. And now a week later, crowds show up and they're jealous. And out of their jealousy, they're trying to undo and contradict Paul's message. So, so at first, when I first read it, I thought it seems odd to me that they would be trying to contradict Paul's message when what they're jealous about is that Paul can gather a big crowd. Because you see, it was my assumption that the reason they're jealous is because uh, the entire town showed up and they've probably been trying to gather the entire town their whole life and now Paul shows up and he's the stranger in town and he gets everyone to come. But that's because I was thinking in our cultural context and especially in a church planting or church growth context, right? The unfortunate reality of our cultural context is that whoever gets the biggest is the winner, right? Whoever has the biggest business, the biggest bank account, the biggest church, the biggest whatever, that person is the most successful. And that's how we roll in our culture. So if you're going to be jealous about something, you're going to be jealous because someone else gets a bigger thing than you get, a bigger house than you get, a bigger boat than you get, right? And so, uh, so that's where we tend to roll in our culture. So from a ministry standpoint, I immediately could, could get that. I, you know, I'm, I'm the guy in town plugging away and some strange pastor comes in, plants a thing next door and everyone in town goes there. And you're like, Ugh. but you see, if that was where the jealousy was born, then they might not like Paul much, but they wouldn't start trying to undo this message that he's sharing. Their jealousy has nothing to do with the size of the crowd. Because in the Jewish context, they wouldn't really have cared much for the size of the crowd. They wouldn't have really cared much if a bunch of people showed up or not. What they would have cared about was the nature of the crowd. Not the size, the nature. What is this crowd? Who is in this crowd? Why are they here? See, in the Jewish context, they have been spending their entire history guarding themselves from the dark, dangerous, unclean world outside. They have been recognizing for centuries that they are the chosen people of God and that the enemies of God are out there and the enemies of God are unrighteous and they seek to destroy the Jewish people and, and keep them under captivity. And so they have spent centuries guarding the things of God, recognizing that their privilege, their honor, what sets them apart is that they belong to God and that God reveals himself to them and that God protects them and that God is looking out for them and that God will rescue them and that God will restore them to their rightful place where they will be above everyone else and be able to go, now we are who we were meant to be. The nation of Israel, the people that belong to God, and now finally we can rise above all of the nations that have held us captive and show you it was your mistake. I mean, it's, it's the pretty woman syndrome, right? Like where you get to walk out and you go, hey, see, look, you sh you sh you should have helped me. And this is Israel kind of going, hey, listen, God is about to restore us to our rightful place in the world. 
And then the next week they show up and suddenly all these people are showing up that do not belong to God, that are not the chosen people. And Paul just got up and he's preaching to all of them as though they should be hearing this message and that this message should apply to them. It is calling the enemy into the camp and saying, the good news is for all of you. So the Jewish people are going, well, hold on. What are all these people doing in here? Why are they here and what are they here for? This is not good. And they're waiting for the great rabbi Paul to kind of go, oh, when I said synagogue next week, I I meant for these people, all of you. But now he gets up and starts preaching to everyone like it's for everyone. And suddenly the Jewish people, the Jewish leadership are going, this message he's preaching, this cannot be the message from God because it is an inclusive in a way that does not belong. And in that inclusiveness, it brings into our story messiness and it brings into our story things that do not belong. It causes us and forces us to have to lay down things that we have spent centuries protecting, centuries building up, centuries pursuing. See, this is calling everything into question. See, when we first read this and we go, these guys were jealous, uh, part of us goes, man, how, how could that happen? But it's not actually that far off, is it, from what tends to happen when the gospel begins to intersect with our lives. When we first interact with the gospel and we collide with it and we come awake to its wonder and we recognize who we are, that we are lost and we've been lost to life and light and freedom and we've been chasing after the wind, building our kingdoms, our thrones, our entitlements, our rights, building what we think our world should be, making sure we're preserving everything so that we can have what we want. And we come in contact with the gospel and it suddenly says, man, you've been pursuing all this, but all this stuff gets you nowhere in the end. And so we, we, we discover this freedom and this wonder of the gospel as it calls us into a greater rescue, a greater freedom, a greater story. We discover our purpose is restored and we no longer have to live for all these things exclusively. We're now living for a much bigger story, an eternal story. It's great news, isn't it? And then here's what the gospel does next. Now that this great news is born in us, this great news starts spilling out of us because it does start transforming us into freedom. So we start and you know, we're sharing it, it's coming out of us and before you know it, suddenly uh, difficult and, and messy stories start coming into our lives. And we're like, whoa. Well, you see, th- these, are the, these are the kids I don't let my kids play with. These are the people I don't hang out with. They're bad influences. And suddenly the gospel's like, no, I want you to go, I want, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're coming, they're asking, they're wanting to know. Yeah, but if they come into our little world, they're going to mess it all up. You see, we feel that way, don't we? We become protective of what, what we want because the gospel has restored us indeed, but surely it can't be inviting all that mess in here. Oh yes, oh yes it can, and oh yes it will. And then, just when we think we're all done with that, the gospel does the next thing. It starts calling us out into the mess, not even bringing it here, but going, man, mission is our lives. All these things we've been building all this time, all these kingdoms, all these resources, all these, all these stories, all these things that we thought we were building for ourselves, oh, they are very valuable. They're valuable as far as they can be used for the continued expansion of the kingdom of God and the redemptive message. And so we start diverting our talents and our resources and our relationships and energies, and we're called out on mission, and mission is hard. It's difficult, it's messy. So the gospel suddenly calls us into a story bigger than we imagined and harder than we imagined. And suddenly we're like, huh, this is, I mean, I like freedom and all, but wow. See, at first it's a kind of a coming awake to the privilege of mission. And then, as though the gospel isn't finished, here's what it does next. 
It enters into our hearts and souls and it seeks out every throne we've established, every entitlement we've held and protected, every right we know we have and ought to have, every kingdom we've built and it starts saying, hey, if you really wanna be free, take that off the throne and place me on it. Jesus says, I need to reign there. And the gospel, the good news, the reality of Christ's redemption begins to work in us and call out of us our idols, our entitlements, our rights. And it says, man, your privilege is to lay yourself down for a much bigger story than those little stories you were building. And what we tend to do is we tend like these guys at first when the gospel starts calling us out of our comfort zones and out of our places of safety, asking us to lay them down, our first reaction is always, oh, I'm jealous for those things. I'm jealous for those things. And we start protecting those things from the gospel instead of allowing the good news, the redemptive reality of Jesus to unfold in us. And this is what happens. Listen to what Paul says. Verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly to these Jews that were speaking out against them. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. It was necessary. See, what he's saying is, in the story that God is writing, his intent, the the necessary part of the unfolding story was that he would first bring the great news to you. Why? Because Paul had just done it. He just unpacked for them the entire story of the nation of Israel. He said, look what God has done with you. Look at the privilege you've had from the beginning. He chose you to be the catalyst for this story. He chose you to be the spark through which he was going to bless all the nations. Remember, he told them this in the beginning. He said to the people of Israel, I'm going to come and I'm going to take you as my own to show the world what it looks like when someone belongs to me. And then you are going to become a blessing blessing to the entire planet. That was the intent of God's story all along. And so it was necessary that it was to you first that salvation came, to you first that the good news came. And now here you stand, and as the good news comes to you first so that you can have the unique privilege of carrying it out into the dark world and recognizing that all the kingdoms you have been building and preserving, though they seemed important then and were important then, they are transcended by the greatness of the gospel now. Instead of that happening, this is what you did. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, now that word unworthy there isn't like, you know, you, you, you've realized you, you, you don't deserve eternal life. Now, that's not the unworthy word here. This is this, that, that you have counted yourself a people that does not need that. And we, we, got, we got it covered. We, we are right with God already. Since that has happened, listen to this. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. See, what Paul is telling these guys is this, man, what a bummer that you just missed the entire point of the story. When the good news of Jesus Christ came to you, the great news that he has rescued your soul and restored your purpose and called you into a life of freedom and light and, 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 and wonder bigger than you could have ever imagined and then called you to take every circumstance and every reality and relationship and resource around you and see that as the opportunities by which you can live for the gospel of Jesus and live for his redemptive story instead of for the things you feel you ought to have had, you ought to have, you have the right to, the things that have been taken from you. Instead of doing that, you live for the gospel. That's the big story. Calling you out of your little stories. And you guys have chosen to preserve the little stories against the gospel. 
And for that, you will now miss out on living this incredible life of being the carriers of the good news. It came to you first so you could carry it first. And you set it down. You were not, no, I'd like to live at a distance from what the gospel's calling me into because I have a life that I've spent my whole life building and I, I don't, I don't want to risk it for this. And he says, you, you're, you're going you're to miss out. And as Paul and Barnabas stand on the edge of that reality, telling these guys, don't miss out on this story by being so concerned about your little story. We watch Paul literally risking everything that he is for the sake of the gospel because uh, before when he encountered Jesus, he made the decision, regardless the cost or the risk, I'm gonna step out and I'm gonna lay myself down for the sake of the story. Remember it was Paul who said, you know, I am, I am of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, I had the resume, man. But when I discovered Christ, I consider all things rubbish in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I will suffer all things so that I might share in the greater resurrection, the greater story. So he says, man, listen, we need to lay ourselves down for this. And in the moment that Paul does that, look what happens. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life uh, believed that day. And the word spread throughout the region, it says. So you see the great difference between the moment where we choose when something is calling us out of ourselves and calling us to lay ourselves down for the sake of something greater. We choose in that moment, will I preserve myself or will I lay myself down for others? And the fruit that is born depending on that choice is right here. I've seen this in my life for a number of years now played out right before me. I've seen it in a person literally that I've had the privilege to do life with for a long time. You know, uh, about 19 years ago or so, um, I had this extraordinary opportunity where God collided my life with the single most extraordinary woman that has ever lived on planet Earth. I, I just, I don't know why I got to collide with her and, and I got that one perfect person, but I did. And so I bumped into her and when I realized she was ultimately the most extraordinary woman on all of planet Earth, I realized I need to do everything I can to lock her in as quickly as possible. And so uh, over the, the next uh, year and a half that we spent together, uh, we ended up getting married and for the last, uh, going on 18 years now, uh, we have been traveling together. And I have watched this dynamic of God calling out of us ourselves to lay ourselves down for the sake of other things born in the heart of this woman. When I first met her, um, kind of heard her story before I'd been part of it, and my, my wife had been pursuing neurosurgery, uh, gone into pre-med because she wanted to become the, the best of the best, man, because in this cultural context, we value the best of the best, and so she was traveling down that path, going to take the, the highest possible level of calling and had the ability to do it. She collided with the gospel uh, in her early college career, and as the gospel did its work in her life, it started opening up a much bigger story for her, and she realized, man, uh, if I pursue this career for the sake of having the best career in the world, that career will also call me out of things that I now recognize God has created me for. And so she started having to wrestle with, do I pursue this dream I have, or do I lay that down so that I can add into the story now, becoming a wife and a mother that would be able to actually be a wife and a mother and not be in a surgery room 24-7 at that level. And so she chose to lay down that story and picked a different track, a simpler track, despite her ability, so that she could open up this story. 
and then she met me, and I think there must be times where she goes, I should have gone with neurosurgery. But nonetheless, uh, she, she met me and uh, started traveling in the world of being a wife, and then uh, the stirring, uh, being in, in a career, she started stirring for ministry, and so we made the, the great decision to lay down her career uh, that she valued deeply and, and was pursuing and gave her a sense of significance so that she could step into volunteering in ministry. And then the stirring for children came, and, and she wanted to step into that great step of motherhood that uh, all of us ladies here, that heart that stirs in us to long to, to, to pour ourselves into a child. And so we started the journey of parenting, and uh, we, were, we had our first child born to us, and, and you know, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's incredible. And then you see what that child does to the, the woman's heart and emotions and body the first three months, and you're like, wow. I mean, there's a laying down for you, man. And then, just when you think it can't get any worse, you realize those are the, those are the easy years. <laughs> it gets harder with kids, right? Because they, they're, they're designed to press every button and, and push every reality. And, and, so, and so suddenly you find yourself uh, going from one kid, and then we had a second child, and that was awesome, and then, and then a third, and, and then a fourth. And, and Brooke would tell you, I mean, she was, she was designed for one and a half children. <laughs> You know, she was designed for, she is a type A person that has a personality that likes order and, and, and predictability and, and silence and quiet and, and, and everything to run away. It's supposed to be, she has a bit of a perfectionist in her. So anything that messes with the world that she has got that, 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 that violates in her things that are her own. And you, you add four children in the mix and suddenly you are violated in those worlds, Right. And so I watched her over the years laying down piece by piece the things that matter to her, the things that we would argue make her who she is, laying them down for the sake of the larger story God's calling her into. Yes, uh, yesterday we had a uh, Mother's Day tea here with a bunch of women and my wife had the opportunity to share her story with the ladies and on Friday night she read me the story that she was going to share and I was excited about it because uh, she had been working on it during the week and she doesn't really like to do public speaking and, and I, I thrive for public speaking. It's the one thing in life, the single one thing that I might say I'm actually better at than, than she is at it. I mean, like, there's one thing in life I do better than you, this is it, Right? So I was really excited. Here's an opportunity for me to pour myself into something she's working on and help her do it better. So I said, well, you get the content on a page and then I'll work. And she said to me on Thursday or Friday, you know, I'm writing and I'm typing and she like typed 20 pages and I was secretly kind of going, yes, she's just dumping a bunch of content on pages. It's gonna be all discombobulated and then I'm gonna be able to bring it together for her and shape it nicely and she's gonna feel like, man, it's awesome. So Friday night she sits down. I'm like, okay, it's late already and I'm like, it's gonna be a long night. And, um, and she reads me what she's written down. She reads me the, 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 uh, the message that God had placed on her heart. And it ran 23 minutes. Uh, and when it was done, I'm sitting on the couch and I'm holding back all sorts of emotions because I don't want to you know, show her that she had just changed my life. And, um, and, and the first thought that crossed my mind, no joke, was this is so unfair. I've been doing this my whole life. And you sit on a couch the first time and write a speech and I can't fix one thing in it. It's ridiculous. I mean, I was, I was a little jealous, I gotta say. But I heard her story of the last two years, and her story was a simple one, that uh, two years ago, God called us, or three years ago, God called us into uh, the incredible journey of adoption, and we had the incredible privilege and wonder of expanding our family to where it is today, and so now my wife has eight kids instead of four, and she was built for one and a half, and you do the math, and, um, and, and she said, you know, the last two years has, has called out of me 
everything that I am, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's demanded from me laying all of it down, not, not always willingly. Everything that uh, had been guarded for years in her life, now not even the, the kingdom she's building, just the rights to just be who she is, is called into question, called onto the table of sacrifice. And she said, you know, it was ultimately in the weakness of all of that, in the failure and all of that, in the devastation of all of that, that I found God to be truly strong. Because our true freedom comes when we lay all of ourselves down for the bigger story that God has. See, this tension, when something calls us out of ourselves in a bigger way than we can imagine, this is the tension of the mother's heart, isn't it? Uh, the mother's heart that wants on the one hand to be all that God has dreamed you to be, and on the other hand, demanding to pour yourself and lay yourself down daily for these crazy little human beings that are trying to kill you, right? I mean, and, 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 and that constant journey, and then watching those human beings grow, and suddenly you've got, uh, like in the video, children that don't think they need you, and prodigal children, and children that aren't living the life you dreamed for them, and then suddenly the story isn't what you wanted it to be, and for some of you here, now you long to be moms, and, and that do- hasn't happened yet, and that story is just uh, tearing you apart, and it's just over and over again, these, these things that we suddenly go, man, suddenly it's no longer my life, my life has to be laid down, and that's really the story of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. It is the true freedom of the gospel. That it comes to rescue us into a life eternally that gives us everything we will ever want or desire. But it does not tell us that while on planet earth, it will also give us all that we want or desire. It tells us the opposite. It says you may have wealth or poverty, you may have sickness or health, you may have lots of things. It's not that any of these things are bad in of themselves. It's not that pursuing, building businesses or things are bad. It's just that they can never take a place in our lives where we guard them more than we guard the call of the gospel in our lives to lay ourselves down for the sake of being redemptive ministers of reconciliation. And our tendency, folks, It's like these Jewish people, that we live for the gospel all good and fine until something occurs in our life or something is is demanded in our life from the redemptive call of the gospel that violates what we believe is our right. And so what we start doing is we start in our insanity guarding the kingdoms we've built from the call of God to lay them down. And in doing that, we miss out on being invited into the bigger stories that God has called us into. Stories where we may lose some of the kingdoms we have, but we gain the privilege of carrying light, life, and freedom into dark places. The gospel will call you to risk your workplace at times. And your workplace represents your paycheck and your provision and your security and everything else. The gospel will call you to risk your relationships at times. The gospel will call you to risk your resources at times. Those resources you've spent your whole life building up so that you can be secure. The gospel may call you to risk those at times into bigger stories. The gospel may call you to risk your core and who you are. I'm designed for this. I don't do that. The gospel may call you to risk that. But when we discover the fullness of the gospel and we see the crowds outside of the walls of our lives and they're messy, they're full of Gentiles and in there's all sorts of stories about, hold on, aren't I the chosen one of God? And isn't this what God wants? And isn't God gonna bless me this way? And then God goes, lay that down for this story. And our tendency is like, no, 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 no. But let us be Paul and Barnabas, right? Saying, God, 
I had the resume and, and have the resume. But that resume will always be placed in a category where when you need it risked on any level, I will risk it. Because what matters to me now is the fact that I have the privilege that I've come to know you first before many of my friends and others so that I can carry you to them. See, that's what Paul said. The gospel came to you first so you could be the carriers of hope and light into the lives of others. And now you are setting it aside and demanding that it not take from you what's yours. We're going to go to the Gentiles anyway, and you're going to be super bummed on the other end. And then after those Gentiles came to know Jesus, you know what those Jewish people did that were, that were outside of the, the wanting to live for the gospel? They kicked Paul and Barnabas out of the town. Because once we start guarding ourselves, the gospel always violates us. And so we're always pushing it away. Nah, nah. Let's seek out in our lives, as I am continually trying to do, the areas where we have established thrones or kingdoms or rights or entitlements that are ours and where we're guarding them from the gospel. And let us relinquish the right and say to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reality of his redemption, the spirit of God, come, come into my life, spirit of God, and come and take those thrones and tear them down that I might finally be free in you and free from this life. Let's live there. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for all that you're doing in our lives, all that you're affecting in our lives, and all that you're calling us into. And remind us, God, as we stand in this place of the incredible beauty of the gospel, that it has rescued our souls into a life bigger than we could ever imagine even now, an eternal life, a right relationship with you. But remind us also, God, that one of the grand privileges of the gospel is that your good news and your redemptive work has also restored to us the purpose that we were created to live, to be able to take our circumstances, our resources, our relationships, our kingdoms and thrones and, 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 and things that we've built and to come and utilize them now to be redemptive in our actions and redemptive in our words. God, we know that every time we try to guard what we perceive as our rights, as, as, as our kingdoms, our things, the things that someone else or something else violated in us, how first reaction is always that we are jealous for those things and we become enemies of those who we should love, enemies of the very call to be redemptive in the gospel. God, where those places in our lives exist, would you come, Spirit of God? Would you reveal and would you break and tear down that we might be free from our angers and our frustrations and our self, uh, self-directed lives and that we would relinquish control to you and live our lives in pursuit of you, laying ourselves down for you. Just as I have watched in multiple occasions through multiple moms in this place, women that have given themselves fully, not always women that have birthed children biologically, often women that have just stepped into the lives of children and taken on burdens that they did not need to and did not have to. And I've watched you, God, call them to lay themselves down day in and day out for the sake of another. May we learn from the mother's heart that we celebrate this weekend and may we all lay ourselves down for the things you've invited us into. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.